start with Git workflows? Uh, yeah. You should start with the intro. Ooh. <laughs> I Pro mean, <laughs> that's... <laughs> Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm Chris. And I'm Steph. And we're developers here at ThoughtBot, hoping to share a few of our adventures with you each week. So, Steph, this is the first time we are talking, uh, at least on the mic, in uh, 2020. How's your 2020 going? It's off to a good start. Well, okay, I got sick at the beginning, so maybe it's not off to a good start. Or if we look at it glass half full, I'm done with sickness for the year because I got it over early. That are you seems... a one and done? That's how you uh, get sick in years? I, I'm going to hope so. <laughs> I'm going to take that stance and just promote that idea into the universe. Maybe yep. it'll become true. The universe will send it right back to you. Cool. So good that you've gotten past that. I feel like that's a pretty common theme where most people seem to get sick right around the beginning of the new year. Have you noticed that? Oh, yeah. I feel like it's the stress of the holidays and just like doing everything leading up to the end of the year. And the weather is less pleasant and just like perfect storm of, of course, we're all going to get sick. We definitely, I've seen in the Boston office, a lot of folks I've done okay in it. Not great, but I haven't gotten like sick, sick. So here's hoping I can stay afloat. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I typically want to blame airports in that mix. At least that's what I'm blaming for this round. I want to blame like all the travel and like you said, the additional stress and, yeah. and all that that happens. But yeah, uh, New Year's off to a great start. I am trying something a little different that I'm excited about because in one of our previous conversations where we were talking about New Year's goals, resolutions, and you'd mentioned that you really like the systems approach. Mm-hmm. And I've heard that before, but when you mentioned it, it really resonated with me again to think about it in those terms because I don't really like the big sort of lofty goals or I'm going to like do this X number of times or anything that seems a bit just sort of like a, a number pulled out of thin air. So I've started using the systems approach and some of those include where each day I'm trying to spend like 30 minutes reading for whichever book I'm making progress on. Also 30 minutes towards like exercise, but just trying to have like 30 minutes banked in segments for something that I'm working towards. Also, if there's like a blog post or an idea in the back of my mind, I'm trying to section it because I'm really bad at I get overwhelmed by goals and stuff that I want to achieve. But I've found that if I'm like, even if I just touch something for like 15 minutes that day, I feel so much more accomplished. Like I may not get it done, but I've just nudged it along. So I'm really liking the systems approach. It's, it's working for me so far. Yeah, I've I've definitely also found like I have the same thing where big giant goals will be sort of demotivating because you're so far from them. And even any incremental progress just doesn't look like much. But the other side of the like taking the little steps is often that's just a nice trick. Like, oh, I'll read for 10 minutes. That's all. I'm only required to read for 10 minutes. And then I get into the book and I'm like, oh, wow, I just read for 45 minutes. That's great. And so like the little trick myself into doing a thing more definitely works out. And other exciting news, I also saw the rise of Skywalker. Oh, yes, I also saw it. What do you think of it? I liked it. It had like very polarized views on the internet or reviews. And so I went into it not expecting much. And it was fine. It was a good little Star Wars romp. I don't hold Star Wars in that lofty of a place in my mind. They're like fun, enjoyable, big budget movies, similar to the Marvel stuff. Like I go to the, actually, I think the Marvel I've enjoyed a little bit more, but Star Wars stuff was great. It was good Star Wars. They had all the Star Wars bits in it. I really like your positive outlook on it. I like how you just said it's a big budget film Mm because that's exactly my attitude towards it. Like I'm going for the entertainment and I didn't really follow a lot of the stories and I don't have a deep invested interest into a lot of the characters to really know like what sort of follows the original storyline or how it should go or how folks envision like it should have been crafted into a movie. So I also feel the similar way. I'm always just curious to ask people because then I really find out who the Star Wars fans Mm. are. But it's funny because as a fan, like, I guess just because you know so much more, but there's just so much I feel like negativity around a movie I can go in and just completely enjoy without the context. But then other folks that are the true fans like struggle with it because they expect it to meet a certain standard. And if it falls off that standard, then they can't enjoy it. So I'm kind of glad I'm in the space of where I don't have a deep invested interest. So it's just two hours of fun. Yeah, the willing suspension of disbelief and all that. I've had a similar experience with Doctor Who, where if I watch Doctor Who in a very like passive way, I'm not leaning in that much. I'm not paying that much attention to continuity across different episodes or things like that. It's just a fun little romp. And cool, time is flexible and we can do whatever. But if I pay a lot of attention, I find it, I, I can't watch Doctor Who seriously, is I guess the way to describe it. And I found that really interesting the day that I discovered that. 
But anyway, I've been uh, meaning to ask you, you've been working on some Ember lately, and that's something that I have very little experience with. So I was wondering, uh, what's what's your situation report from the field? How's that going? How's your Ember time? <laughs> Reporting from Emberland. You know, that's something I have been thinking about actively for the past week or two, because I am very much in Emberland at the moment. And I want to bring something like every time I'm I feel like I'm learning something, I want to bring it to the show and talk about it and share it. But right now, I feel like a lot of what I'm doing is still in survival mode when it comes to Ember and what I'm learning. So I don't have any like concrete like tips and tricks that I have confidence in sharing with Ember just yet, although I'm excited to have some of those in the future to share. But I can say I have really enjoyed the documentation that Ember has produced with their guides. A lot of times I'm scanning through the docs because I'm just trying to figure out how to do one thing. So it's sort of like a get in, get out kind of job of where I just want the answer so I can move on. But then I started, I'm like, well, what if I took the time because I had some time while traveling over the holidays to just, you know, read the docs as lots of people suggest. So I started going through the documentation and I found it very helpful and I haven't finished most of it. So I'm still going through it. So that's part of my other system that I've added where I'm spending like 30 minutes reading like a code related thing, not just a fun book. So I'm working through the Ember guides and I do very much enjoy them. I think they've done a great job and they have a really nice tone in their documentation as well. So that part of Ember has been great. The other part that I'm struggling with is there's just a number of indirection that comes with Ember that I'm still working on. And that has, I think, a lot to do with the data down and actions up. That is something that I've heard for a while, but it's something that I feel like I'm new to experiencing in Ember. So a lot of times when you're passing actions down through components, then finding where that action is truly defined can take a little bit of time for me. I'm still piecing a lot of that stuff together. So I'm still working on the whole like concept of data down, actions up, and making sure I fully understand it. I, th- I think I like the idea because it does make the components a little easier to test in isolation since they're being past that functionality. But I'm still forming opinions. And my sense with specifically data down, actions up, is that that was reaction maybe too strong of a word, but like that React came onto the scene and sort of everybody else started to migrate more towards a React functional-esque structure. And that data down, actions up is basically a React-like pattern, but in Emberland, which historically had different sort of things, controllers and binding actions and things like that. Then again, I barely worked with Ember and it was years ago. So I don't know that any of that is actually true, but that was my sense. Do you find it at all similar to React or does it feel very different? Even though I've had the one client project that I've worked in React, I still have a hard time comparing the two because I feel like there's been just enough time in between those projects that I am struggling to have a strong comparison between React and Ember. I do think my experience in React is helping me get along in Ember just because it does bring over some of the similar concepts. So that part is helping significantly, but I haven't really stepped back to consider like what's different or unique about Ember and then compare that to my experience with React. You said something a moment ago that was interesting that it's React in Emberland. My impression is that Ember was around first and then React. Is that wrong? Or I think that is true chronologically, at least in terms of like when they were released publicly, because Ember has been in development for a long time. It started as like Sprout Core 2, and then it became Ember, and then it became Ember. And all of that has been in public, whereas React was developed in private for a while and then released by Facebook in like 2015. Is that right? That doesn't sound right. I don't know how time works. But I believe that React is a good bit later in terms of when it came out. Okay, cool. Yeah, that was my impression. But based on what you said, I I hesitated for a moment that perhaps I was wrong about which one came first. So yeah, I don't have a strong comparison of the two. But I do think my experience in React is certainly helping me level up quickly in Ember. But it would be fun to sort of like after I spend a little more time in it and step back and then sort of compare the two. Although I really need a React project to be working on to like help me do a full comparison of the two. Well, I think you can do the clean room version of like, how has the experience been? So it sounds like onboarding has been reasonably good. Like you've been able to work in Ember productively. So that's a good data point. And then what's it look like down the road? Do you feel great about working in Ember? Do you feel okay? Do you feel like it takes a very different approach to other frameworks as far as I understand it. It's much more Rails-like in terms of what it's providing. And is that a good thing or is that less of a good thing on the front end? These are the questions I want to know. Yeah, I love them. They're great. I think right now I'm in a space of where I feel okay about it. I think there is some of that magic there that's helping me that I'm not paying attention to. And I feel like other times that reality way can also cause problems where I don't exactly know why something is happening or where it's happening. 
So I think I'm in the space where I feel okay about it. I do love being back in a framework where you import everything that you're using. That part's really nice. So in Rails, if you're looking for a particular function or a method that's defined, you have to know how to find it and where it lives. Could be anywhere. Could be made up on the spot once you call it. Totally. And then with React and with Elm and then also with Ember, it's very explicit up top where I see the import. So that has been fabulous to have that. The tests in Ember have been interesting. I'm not sure if we've talked about the the testing before, but the tests are interesting just because the way it boots up and then you watch it run through all the tests. And that part's really nice to sort of have the visual cue that goes along with it. But then getting it to target just one test and then run it quickly, that part was honestly the hardest onboarding part with Ember. Understanding like, I just want to run one test. I don't I don't want all of them. How do I get just this one test to run? And then I've made the mistake of where I had an error in a file. And so Ember just totally ignored that file and wasn't running. And that took me about 10 minutes to figure out why it wasn't acknowledging my test. So I think that's, yeah, that was like the hardest onboarding. Once I got past that and I feel a little bit more skilled in working with the test, they are very verbose. This is one area that I haven't been in a while where this application has a Rails backend, it has an Ember frontend, and we're writing mostly acceptance tests in Ember or on the Ember client side. And so all of those tests are stubbed out. We're using Pretender as the mocking library to then return those API responses. But we don't have the full like backend frontend test. And I'm starting to really miss that because in a previous project that you and I worked on, what was Rails and Elm, we had the acceptance test, but they were driven through the full stack. And that was really nice because now I feel like my Ember test, I'm trying very hard even for like an update action. It's like, well, I can test that I'm sending the correct parameters, but anything that comes back, I've stubbed out and then... I feel like there's still a little bit of a gap there where I miss having that full integration of a test of knowing it's working end to end because otherwise I'm still manually going through and clicking it to make sure it works. And I feel like that just means I don't have faith in my tests. Faith in the test is sort of the like gold standard in my mind. When they're green, can I like deploy on a Friday at 3.30 or something like that? Is there anything like binding the front end and the back end, something like JSON schema or otherwise connecting that? Because it sounds like you've got most of the front end portion wrapped up in nice testing, but then that where you're mocking out the interface, is there anything that does make sure that that mock is going to be true? Or is that just kept in sync manually? I think it's kept in sync manually. I could be wrong, but that's my current impression is that we're manually keeping that up to date. There's nothing that's like running through that schema and double checking for us. That's mostly what I've encountered other than in GraphQL projects where it's sort of like a given that you get the schema and then everybody's playing along with the schema. But yeah, it's interesting choosing how to test distributed applications, which like any client side application I think of as a distributed application is always a challenge. Yeah, because in theory, I really like the idea that we can test in isolation that if we're updating a record, we can assert that we made a correct call with the correct parameters to this endpoint, and then given an expected response, we render a thing. So that sort of isolation sounds really nice, but I'm realizing, like as you mentioned, would I write this code, write a test, and then feel safe to deploy it? And I'm not at that point that I would, where I would still manually want to test it locally to make sure it's working. So I'm, I'm just feeling that sort of like, I missed the full integration test, but I'm still figuring out if it's worth pursuing, because then that's a heavier lift, where then you have to spin up the back end or spin up the front end, and then write tests that run through the full stack. So that's certainly an investment that you want to make sure pays off. It's interesting. I'm in sort of the other world right now, where the app that I'm working on has a set of end, end tests and... We attempted to build a mock API, but for reasons, architectural reasons related to how the app is built, that was too difficult. That was too much of a lift to get to there. So right now, the end-to-end tests run against uh, staging. So they're connected to staging, and there's some data that we expect to always be there. But there's brittleness and mystery guess and all sorts of things about that that I wish were not the case. I would love to have the sort of setup execution assertion, especially in end-to-end test land. And right now, we don't have that. But it is so much harder to do in this sort of situation. Like in Rails, it was so much easier. You could just say, yeah, I got the database. I'm going to throw a factory bot, make some stuff, put it in the database, go to the page, do the thing. But that gets so much harder. And I miss it. It does. Yeah. And I, I, I miss it too. I'm interested a moment ago, you said that it's running against staging. Uh, how does that work? Is it actually using data that's in staging for mm-hmm. the test assertions? 
So if it's using the data, I can see you nodding, so I'm just going to keep going. <laughs> I very gently said, mm -hmm, but thank you for <laughs> stating aloud for those at home following along. So if it's running against the data that's on staging, is this a staging environment where folks aren't allowed to change data? Does data get changed and that then impacts the test? How does that interplay? Staging has some pre-populated data that is visible to different users. And then we have a set of, there are five different sort of personas or roles within the app that we have test users that are built up. And one of the difficulties is there's a staging refresh that happens once every couple of months, two to three months, something like that. So every time that happens, it kills the users and we have to rebuild them. And so we've gone through now the process at least of documenting that better. Ideally, that would be automated, but for other reasons that has been very complicated to automate. So now it's a manual fix to update those users again, but we can do that pretty quickly based on the documentation that we have. But yeah, those users, we have those users. That's the main sort of data that we rely on. The really complicated bit was there's actually two users in the app that need to be related to each other in terms of the application is a two-sided marketplace. So one's the supply side, one's the demand side of the marketplace. And they need to be connected in certain ways within the application's understanding of the world. But it's actually very, very difficult to figure out how to even know if they're connected and then how to make them be connected and that was a whole process, but we have figured that out. And that sort of coupling is, is very, very brittle, very hard to maintain. It's the reason that ideally we wouldn't be doing this, but that's the world that we're in for other reasons. There are other aspects of the system that are forcing us in that direction. And so we have to make the best, find the best version of confidence that we can get to and maintainability and sort of all of those different constraints and find that nice, happiest point in the middle of all of those. Do you find that running these tests against staging it sounds like there's some complicated factors that go along with it, but even given the complication that comes with having that setup and maintaining that setup, does that give you enough confidence that you would prefer going that path where you're always running these tests against staging? Or would you prefer to have it more individual tests where you're testing the client side in isolation and the back end in isolation and then trusting that as long as those are correct, then everything should work in between? We have found consistently that there is some value in spinning up the whole thing and doing the fully integrated end-to-end -end story. Like we're in the process right now. This past week has been a week of refactoring basically all of the inputs in the app. We're working on a component module, like design system sort of thing, and we're replacing basically every form input throughout the app, which is a bunch. And the end-to-end -end test did, in fact, highlight some things that were very subtle but did actually catch it, and that's happened on a few different things. So we've consistently found some value in them, but it's part of, we also have TypeScript. We also have code generation related to the GraphQL schema in this application. And we also have unit specs within React land, which those end up being sort of mini integration tests in themselves. Like integration is not the right word, but they're not unit tests in the way I think of a unit test that I would write in a Ruby or Rails application where I've got a class and I'm just exercising that, this tiny little piece of the system. Because of the way React works, for this tree of the application, this portion of the DOM tree, it's almost like I'm making a mini integration test for it. Do this thing, click as a user, do whatever. It, almost everything is driven from a UI-centric point of view. So much is components in React applications as opposed to just like loose functions. So, so much of it is tested at that level. And so a lot of our testing is also there. But yeah, it's a, it's a whole portfolio. We have a bunch of different things that we're doing. That's perfect that you'd mentioned that because I've been meaning to ask you that question about when it comes to testing components in React because I was testing a component in Ember and in this particular component makes an API call or it collaborates with another class and then that class is going to make an API call. So in my normal way that I would test something in Rails, I wanted to stub out that function call and then just have it return like a set of results or return like an empty list. I didn't want to have to care what's happening underneath the fact that this component at some point will interact with another class that then is going to make an API call. But I was struggling to mock out that particular call. And then someone on my team had mentioned, they're like, well, we would actually just go ahead and let it make the API call, but use Pretender to mock it out. So then we're testing more of the system. And that felt really weird to me because I don't want to do that. That doesn't feel like my normal approach. But then I was wondering, well, maybe this is just different for like how we test Ember components. And instead of trying to like stub out the collaborators and not know what they're doing underneath the hood, we actually do want to take it all the way to the network call and stub that out to make sure we're testing like the whole tree, as you referenced. Does that sound true? Is that what you would do in React? Or how would that work? That has been my experience. I don't know that I think of it as like a good thing that we're doing. I'm still trying to figure out testing in the front end in a way that I feel really good about. I think a lot of it does end up being in that world. And so part of this 
GraphQL gets sort of coupled into it because it very strongly informs how the app is going to be built and how data fetching happens. So within Apollo, which is the client-side framework we'll use to pull data from the GraphQL backend, there are utilities, mock providers. So there's this other React component that you wrap around the component under test. And you can use that to say, hey, when there's a query that looks like this, respond with data that looks like this. So that makes it really easy to do that. It's, I think, similar to what you're describing with Pretender. It's not quite to the network level. It's getting a little bit closer, but we're like doing it in React land. But that is a bigger thing than what I would do in Ruby. And I've gotten to the point that I was very happy with how I would do testing and mocking and things like that in Ruby and Rails applications. And I've yet to find that happy place in the client side. I think I've mentioned it in a bunch of episodes lately, but React Testing Library is one of the things that is helping move me in that direction. And that leads towards the sort of UI-centric testing of like, mount the component with this data, click on it, expect to see this in this labeled you know field or something like that. But it is interesting, like, it's less of functions. The other thing I'm doing all the time lately is playing with Elm, and Elm takes a different view of the world. And it's interesting how each ecosystem, I sort of have a different approach. That's an interesting comparison. So if you're writing an application in Elm, I haven't done any testing in Elm, have you? Very, very little. Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure what the comparison would look like there if I were writing tests, because I have a little bit of experience with React now, and I'm working on gaining experience with Ember. But yeah, I'm not sure what that would look like if I were testing the front end, if it would be similar, where I find that I'm testing more of the interactions and stubbing less of the collaborators like I would in Rails. And I'm, I'm not sure what that answer would be, but that would kind of be fun to figure out one day. I think given how constrained Elm's whole worldview is, I would probably feel pretty good having integration tests around the Elm application, like a capybara type thing, and then the Elm compiler and maybe a handful of Elm tests, but more here's this specific like algorithmic function within our system. And given this data in, I expect this output, but not to the level of like testing a view function within Elm. I feel like it would be odd just in the way that like Elm all affects our data and things like that. Both simultaneously, I think that sounds very testable. And also, I don't know how to do it. And I'm not sure that I would find a ton of value in it. Because if it compiles, it works. And so then the question is, does it do the right thing? And an integration test is the best way to answer, does it do the right thing when it works? And the compiler is the best way to answer, does it work? And so those are sort of the two questions I have, and perhaps the two ways that I would answer them. But I don't know. Yeah, I think my particular question comes down to more specific conditional behavior that lives in the view. So I know that it works. I know that it compiles. And then I have the happy path or the acceptance test of documenting a successful user flow of a goal they're trying to achieve. But then it comes down to if I have a conditional where it's like if I get data back from the API, let's render this list and the user can perform an action. But then if I don't get data back from the API and then I render this message of, sorry, there are no records here, I want to test that. But I don't typically lean into testing that at the acceptance level because that doesn't fall into that sort of like a user achieving a goal. That's just something that we want to show a user in a particular state. That's what I would want to test at a more like view spec layer. Mm -hmm. And on Ember, that's translating to writing a component test where I'm still reaching out and mocking out the network call to then return like an empty list to then test that. So it's kind of blurring the line a little bit for me between like testing in Rails what would be a view spec and then bringing that over to Ember what's a component spec. But because I'm going all the way out to the network, I feel like I've lost some of that isolation of where I just want to test this conditional. I don't really care that it's talking to a third party. That's just kind of where I'm at. And I just I'm curious if that would be the same for Elm where we would still test the network layer to test that sort of conditional. What even does it mean in Elm to test the network layer? Can't do anything in Elm. (laughs) <laughs> no, I'm uh, I'm joking. The Elm runtime does everything, which is sort of the serious version of the joke there. And so your code just emits data, and that's all it is. And so probably you could test that. But I would still, in Elm, it would be a totally different answer because it's a totally different thing. But thinking about that in the context of React, if I had a bigger component that was like doing some network call, and when it got back data, and then something else happens, and then ideally I'd have some subcomponent that I could extract, and then that just gets props passed in. And those props... Based on that, I show one thing, or like, so the conditional lives in this subcomponent, and then you can do a very, very isolated test on that thing. And so there's definitely those, and I feel great about those. 
I do see a lot of React components that I think are bigger than I want them to be, and I feel like more extraction could be useful, and then it allows for different levels of testing for different levels of components. Yeah, I think that's a really good point where, in my case, the component that I'm testing could be extracted to another component that is passing in that value, and then I could test the conditional in isolation, and then I'm not going out to stub the API for that particular test. But I think that's a good solution to the, the scenario that I'm running into now. So yeah, that's kind of where I'm at with Ember. <laughs> that was a cool uh, little focused update on Ember. I uh, know, we went on a nice adventure there. I uh, had more things to say about Ember than I thought I would. I expected as much. I'll check back in, in a few weeks and see how you're feeling then. You'll probably <laughs> well, say you have nothing to say week. and then somehow... <laughs> we, we chat weekly. You know this, right? <laughs> I do, yes. Now we're going to take a quick break to tell you about today's sponsor, Clubhouse. Clubhouse is a fast and enjoyable project management platform that breaks down silos and brings teams together to ship value, not features. Let's face it, slow, confusing UX is so last decade. Clubhouse is lightning fast, built for today's software teams with only the features and best practices you need to succeed and nothing more. Here are a few highlights about Clubhouse. They have flexible workflows, easily customized workflow states for teams or projects of any size. They also offer advanced filtering where you can quickly filter by project or team to see how everything is progressing. And they also offer sprint planning. Set your weekly priorities with iterations and let Clubhouse run the schedule. Clubhouse ties into your existing tools, services, and workflow. Get notifications or create a story in Slack. Update the status of a story with a pull request. Preview designs from Figma links. Build your own integration with our API and more. And last but not least, they offer enjoyable collaboration, easy drag and drop UI, dark mode, emoji reactions, and more. When you're doing your best work and your team is clicking, life is good. Clubhouse has recently made all core features completely free for teams up to 10 users, and they're offering listeners of the Bike Shed two free months on any paid plan with unlimited users and access to premium features. Give it a try at clubhouse.io slash bike shed. That's clubhouse.io slash bike shed, just one word. Thanks again to Clubhouse for sponsoring this episode of The Bike Shed. So that's sort of life at the moment. How are things going with your project? They're good. I mentioned briefly the the larger factoring that I'm on. I've been in a long-running branch. Do not recommend. Uh, we ended up in one of those situations where we were going into this big refactor. We wanted to change out all of the components at the same time because otherwise the app would have this disjoint look and feel. Some components would have the new visual style, some would have the old, and so... I actually came into this project a little bit later after this decision was made, but I think I agree with it. There was a consideration of, do we do this all at once or do we try and break it up? As a rule, our preference would be to break it up, do smaller pieces of work, smaller PRs, smaller pushes to production, all that kind of stuff. But for a couple of reasons, both technical complexity and then user experience and having that disjoint look and feel, we opted for the go big option. It's been rough. Uh, Rebasing has been terrible. I just need to keep up with everything that's happening in the app. And simultaneously, one of the things that's going on is translation. So the app was initially written with string literals in a lot of places for our components, but they're now going back and retrofitting in translation keys and doing all that stuff. Those are colliding like, whoa, with everything that I'm doing. So you have a long running branch that is swapping out the components, updating the visual design and doing translations? We are not. No, another team is doing the translations. Okay. And so like each day I'll come and I'll be like, all right, yesterday was a good day. We got a little bit further. More tests are passing. We're heading in the right direction. Let me rebase real quick and just get on top of the current version of the master branch. And then I just hit lots of things. There's a lot of work that's going on in this application, and the nature of the change that we're doing is it sort of touches everything. So that's been a little bit rough. And then also just having trust in the thing that we're doing. We have TypeScript on this project. It has told us many things, but it has not told us everything. Lots of places where things have fallen through the cracks. So we've had a whole round of manual testing as well. But then the manual testing led to a bunch of issues that we needed to resolve. So we made a bunch of code changes. Now we probably should go back and do the manual testing again. And it's sort of a perfect storm of all of the things that ideally we could avoid. But in this case, we made the choice to go big on this. I still, given the information we had at the time, I still think that was the right call. But it's such a case study and why we don't do this unless we really, really have to. Somebody's just branched off of our branch actually as well. It's like, oh, we need to, we want to build on top of what you're doing. So can we branch off of yours? And we're like, oh, we don't know how soon this is going to land. We hope really soon. But if you are ready to cherry pick for a while and deal with the conflicts, and I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny when, yeah, you're working on something and someone's like, well, I can just branch off of your work, right? And you're like, oh, I would not recommend <laughs> with the way my life's going Strong right now. Strong <laughs> disrecommend, but I understand if you have to. 
You know, in the past, when we've talked a bit about long running branches and trying to ship frequently to avoid this sort of scenario where you're having to keep up this code with everything that's going on in master. And then it's sort of that sort of like big release and surprise at the end that's complicated. Design's an interesting part of that that I don't think I've thought about as heavily in the past where typically the stuff is more like feature or development focused where we can still ship incrementally. But I do understand that if someone wants to like swap out the design, that's a weird thing to like roll out incrementally and just have certain pages start to look and feel different. So that does feel like an exception to the rule of where you're trying to do stuff incrementally, because I don't know how you would do it incrementally unless it's small enough style changes that you feel like you can introduce them without shocking your users too much. In this case, it was definitely not that. There's like a very obvious visual distinction between sort of older version of the design and the newer version of the design. So yeah, it sort of does push us in that direction. We also talked about potentially feature flagging, but that would need to be done at sort of like every leaf node. So each component would have two different versions and the feature flag would toggle all of the components into the new version. And so we would be able to get it out into production and have a certain portion of the, you know, dial up 5%, 10%, something like that. But thinking about the complexity of that and just maintaining the two different code paths and there are slightly different interfaces to some of the components. There was a choice that was made that seems very straightforward and very reasonable, but has caused a lot of pain. And it's related to select components. So every option that's in that list has a name and a value or a label and a value. Those are two different words that we could use to refer to it, either the label or the name. The previous version had label. The new version has name. That has been incredibly painful. And it seems like such a small thing. And Seems like the right, like, yeah, move in the direction of the domain terminology that you want to use. Perfectly reasonable. Let's rename things. And it's just been ugh, a whole thing. Is it so painful because you've had to go through your branch and update it everywhere as well? Or what was the pain that was felt there? Those ideas turn out to show up in a ton of places. There are lots and lots of select or drop down type inputs in the app. So everywhere that someone was using one, everywhere that someone has translated one, everywhere that someone has added a new item to a list each rebase I keep running into it. And then unfortunately, in some cases, there were a few things that had fallen out of TypeScript's purview. Any is the enemy of having trust in your compiler. And so we ended up missing some and having to find those via the manual testing. And basically, we were surprised that it was as painful as it was. And it's the sort of thing, in retrospect, the team's like, yeah, we would not have even done that if we knew that this was going to be that painful. All of this to say... I've become obsessed with Elm lately because <laughs> uh, in my head, a lot of these pains just go away if you're in the happy land of Elm. You get other stuff that you have to deal with, but having a compiler that could tell me everything, TypeScript told me a bunch of things and that was really nice. But then suddenly TypeScript was like, it's, it works, it's compiling. And I'm like, I don't know if I trust you on that. Or I trust that you have done everything that you can TypeScript, but you don't necessarily have all the information, unfortunately. And the other thing is we've actually had a bunch of side effect related things. There's imperative focus management and some other complex things in like navigation that's happening. And it's low level components that are capable of causing these side effects. And again, immediately I'm like, I want a system where no one can do anything. Where only (laughs) the one file at the root of the entire application can actually do stuff. That's the land I want to live in. And again, obviously has lots of trade-offs, but... I'm just thinking of some, like, jaded developer who's built an app, and they're, like, inviting people to come look at it, and they're like, it doesn't do anything, I don't see anything. And they're like, yeah, it's beautiful, it does nothing. But there are no (laughs) bugs. There are no bugs. (laughs) So what's the... What's the horizon look like for this long branch? Because I'm envisioning that you're touching every component that's in this application while other developers are also updating those components, and I'm just very interested in how you're going to reconcile and then ship. So what's interesting is this branch started before the holidays. And so that's part of what the fun has been. This work was, we were hoping to land it last year. It didn't land. It then crossed over the new year and then was transitioned because the teams, at the same time, there was some team shuffling that happened. So I've now inherited the branch that was in process. And then we've had to rebase and then get through manual testing. So as of yesterday, we were doing the manual testing process. And It was actually going pretty well. There were definitely some things that we needed to fix, but it seemed like it was going well. So I think the horizon is in sight, and hopefully early next week we'll actually be able to merge it, get it out to production, keep an eye on things. But it's one of those that, like, I feel like the answer will be if we merge this and deploy it to production and then we find a bug, 
the answer is not to revert. The answer is to solve that bug as quickly as possible and deploy a fix because reverting this, like, it's sort of got to be get it out there and then work on top of that because reverting it and being like, no, no, okay, we'll try again in a minute will be too painful. So we've got to get to a point of confidence, but I think we're close to that. But yeah, that's, that's sort of the process. Yeah, that makes sense about not reverting because otherwise you've lost the value of working hard to then do this sort of seamless shift to this new design. And then if you revert, then you'll have some users that may have seen the new design and then suddenly it's rolled back and they see the old design. So it, it kind of feels like you lose the purpose of all this work that was poured into it. So that makes a, a lot of sense to me. I will say based on some of like the experiences that you're sharing and some of my recent experiences, I've become a much bigger fan of feature flags. Mm. And I've always been a fan of feature flags. I think they're great. But I think, Stephanie, of a year ago, if someone had proposed, like, we should feature flag a lot of our work, and then that way we can roll it out and turn it on when we're ready, me of a year ago would have been like, yeah, but then we have to maintain the existing code, and then we have to make sure we go back and delete the old code, and it's just complicated, and we might as well just roll out the new thing and trust that we can do it and write tests, and it'll be great. But now that I've experienced working with a team that uses feature flags far more heavily, and then in the context for design, that's really intriguing to me to also feature flag that work so it can be turned on across the whole application but it sounds like you'd mentioned earlier that y'all already talked about feature flags and that was something that didn't really fit for this particular approach or change. I think we deemed it too complex. We also, one of the projects that the team that I'm on is hopefully going to tackle this year is revamping the feature flag system because it's not quite as powerful or ergonomic as we would like. And so in terms of like trust in that as a primitive within our process, it's not quite where we would want it to be. But it's an interesting thing where I similarly haven't used feature flagging, I think, as much as could be useful. If we were to ask Chris of a year ago, I think he would probably say something to the effect of like, that feels like a lot of complexity to bring into the app. But if you have a really solid mechanism for managing feature flags and handling that and and using that, and it becomes part of the natural workflow of the team, then it can become such a powerful thing. Like I feel similarly about logging or metrics or things like that, where if you need to start from zero, it's going to be a lot of work and a lot of complexity. But if it becomes part of how you ship every single feature, then the value is so, so high. And so I think it's something that I would consider a lot more now and moving forward. But yeah, circling back, uh, one of the things that I mentioned as part of the complexity of all the fun I've been on is a long-lived Git branch. And I know that you've been having some Git fun lately, and let's catch up. How's Git going? Git has been interesting for me lately. So I talked about this a little bit with George on the previous episode, because if I recall correctly, he's also in an interesting state with his current client and workflow. But I believe it's the opposite one of mine. So the current workflow that I'm in when I joined the team is centered around like, how do we handle rebasing, squashing, PRs, that sort of like workflow. And when I joined the team and I was pairing with someone else, we're initially going through and we're committing everything locally and I pushed it up to a PR and I have, let's say, five or six commits that are there for folks to start to review. And then after that PR was reviewed, I was ready to squash it all down and then merge it. And then the other person was like, well, hold on, friend. Like, we actually don't want to squash it. We want to preserve it and leave it there. And that was just so brand new to me. I was like, well, why would I want to keep my sort of intermediary work and process commits and capture those in history. Like I want this to go to master. It's really the polished final product that I want to send in. So we've had some conversations around that particular workflow, but that one was so intriguing to me because I I think I'm pretty open when it comes to people challenging something that I'm fairly accustomed to, but I've noticed when it comes to something that I rely on so much, like my Git workflow, that that one threw me for a loop. And I'm still trying to figure out how I feel about it, if I should just be fiery and feel strongly about it, or if I'm trying to find a happy place in the middle of like, yeah, no, that's cool. Like people can do what they want. So yeah, that's kind of where I'm at with the Git workflow. And we can dive in more, but I'm going to I'm gonna pause there. Fire Steph, forced to keep her work in process commits. I think I would resist this one very strongly, but it's always interesting, like knowing the context and, and the reasons. That's the thing that I would find most interesting is why the desire to hold on to all of those references to the journey. I really value the ability to just whip commit whatever I'm doing, commit right before lunch, because what if my computer blows up? Like... I treat it as these little throwaway checkpoints along the way or little steps on the process that I'd like to be able to unwind to any of those. But at the end, I actively don't want that. I want to get rid of all of that. And I just want to tell the one story that's useful for future me. And I think 
being able to go back in history and see the story as to why some piece of code changed in a certain way and have the developer who did it tell me a story in the commit message when that's available is so, so valuable. And when I'm on projects that don't have that, where people are just committing whatever and then merging that, and I can't go back through history and get any value from that, I feel sort of lost and very sad about that. I completely agree with you on a, on a lot of that. But I think there's a couple different threads that we can pull in this conversation that I'm, I'm really interested in. So one of them is sort of the assumption that when we're working on work, everything is sort of in that creative flow and it's work in progress and we push it up to PR and folks are looking at that. So my initial flow when I'm pushing something up is I will still squash everything and then I send it up to a PR. Whatever's going to be the most meaningful content for reviewers is what I'm going to push up. And then as folks make comments, I'm going to address those comments in separate commits and then push that up so that way they know that I've acknowledged and this is the change that I've made relevant to their comment. And then once that's all done, I'm going to squash it and then merge it. So one initial thought process around not squashing it or one reason to not squash it is folks said that they found value in being able to go back to that PR and then see some of the conversations that took place and then see what changed and why it changed to have that historical context. So then I was intrigued as to the idea of going to GitHub looking for that context because it's more of my default reaction to look at the Git log for that to have some of that context. So I noticed that the commit messages weren't capturing a lot of the content that I think people were going to GitHub. That's what they really wanted. So that was my first thought around the topic was if we were capturing more content and the commit message, then folks wouldn't feel the need to preserve some of those commits in the pull request and then merge them into master because you've already captured that somewhere else. So that was one interesting approach as to like why to keep the commits. So with that kind of address, so we had sort of like a team meeting and we're capturing more content and to commit messages, everyone seemed on board with that. So that's been really great. One question I do have for you that I'm really interested in talking through a bit more is when you'd mentioned that you go to master and you feel a bit lost if folks are merging in a lot of their work in progress commits versus having one concise commit that captures the true work that is then going out to all the users. And feeling lost, one, how much value are we getting when we look at master? And then two, is that sort of a superficial thing that we care that master looks polished versus it just sort of like serves as this versioning of like everything that we've touched and the reason that we've changed it? What are your thoughts around that? I think the way that I would frame it, and there's probably some amount that I'm like, I want it to look clean and linear and I value like the ergonomics of that. But in reality, the thing that I care about the most is the ability to, when I'm on a line of code and it looks a little bit odd to me, can I, and how quickly can I get to someone telling me a story as to why they wrote the code that way? And I'll be honest, it's a small amount of the time that I'm even going to make an attempt to do that. And it's an even smaller amount of the time that I will get a good answer to that. So it requires a project in which we're being dutiful in both having a clean linear history and in making sure that the commit messages capture as much of the context and the reason. But I think that's something that we really prioritize in our Git workflows. And so when I have a project that's like that, I will use that functionality often. So within the editor, um, I think we've talked about this before, but Herman has a wonderful blog post on the ThoughtBot blog that talks about the actual how to get to this from your editor. But I'll use that very, very often if the project is one that supports it. So I don't actually care so much about the like, how does this look? If I do Git log, do I see a big spidery tree? I don't want that, but whatever, I'll deal. It's more, can I do that lookup? Can I get the additional context when I'm looking at a line of code and it's somewhat confusing to me? And if the answer is, well, we have that in GitHub, or a lot of times what I'll see is, oh, the information's in the ticket, the ticket's on Jira, the commit message has a link to, or the, in my mind, the worst case is it has the ticket number. Any of those are more indirect. And they're also not real systems, like they can go away. We might move from Jira to Trello someday, and then suddenly we've lost all of that context. The commit message is the only thing that I really trust. Even GitHub is not a permanent feature of my workflow. But Git, for this repository, for right now, is definitely a permanent part of my workflow. And so that's, in my mind, the ideal place to put that. And every other system of record is slightly worse for those reasons. It's more indirect. It's harder to get to the thing. Like from a line of code, I'm not even sure how I would get to the pull request that most recently modified that. I think I could figure it out, but it would be a whole hop, skip, and a jump. I think you just helped me figure out what it is that kind of bothers me with not being able to squash my commits and then sort of have that polished version that goes into master. Because it's something I've been struggling with where I really 
value the idea that if teams allow everyone to follow a workflow that they enjoy. So if there are folks that are finding a lot of value out of the fact that they don't want to squash all their commits and have those additional commits, then I think that's great. I've realized I get a bit fiery myself if people tell me that I can't squash because that's the way that I'm so accustomed to working and it's what I prefer in the world. So I've been wrestling with the idea of like, why does it bother me if commits aren't squashed? What what am I losing in this particular context? And then same for the other perspective. If I'm squashing, what is the person who doesn't want to squash? What are they losing? So we sort of find that middle ground. And I think in my terms, what I feel like I'm losing is that clarity as to like, what is the change? What was the final decision? Because I often don't want to see a lot of the conversation that goes along with the change. So if someone has merged in work that has five different commits. The first commit captures the idea of what they want to do. The second one, they've decided to change it to something else. And then the third one, let's say they changed it back because the first approach was right. I don't really care about all of that. And I just want to know what was the final outcome? Where are we at now? And I'm going to trust the code and the test and everything from that point forward. If I have to go back and read through all those different commit messages, I feel like I'm looking in the wrong place at that point. So I guess that's part of it for me, too, is I feel like I've, I've lost that context of the story, or at least I've lost the succinctness of that story. And I just want to know where I'm at. I don't necessarily want to know how they got there. That part is less interesting to me versus like where the world is today. So maybe that's sort of like the big battle is some people really want that context and they want to have a way to look back because they find it valuable. And I'd be really intrigued to find out exactly what sort of problems or issues people feel like they've solved by having that incremental documented commit message of like, I changed a typo, and then I changed it back. And (laughs) I'm being trivial with it now. (laughs) But versus having the more like, this is where I ended up, this was the final conversation, because that's a collaborative process, there's going to be tons of little incremental changes. And I just want to know where did we end up? What was the final resolution sort of like with travel tickets, there's a lot of work that went into deciding what feature we're going to work on. And when I get to the travel ticket, having some of that context is nice, but otherwise, it's just overwhelming. And I just want to know, what are the goals? What the decisions like what's the user impact here I want to be very focused so yeah I think that's that's kind of what I would still lean towards and in favor of although I have in this case adjusted how I work to also meet the team standards where I am not squashing anything after it's been reviewed or I'm once it's reviewed, I still squash stuff. But then past that point, once it's gone into staging, then I won't squash anything if there's anything I needed to change. So when you say go to staging, so you're taking a branch, a work in progress branch, and deploying it to staging for acceptance testing before merging it? I am. Gotcha. Yeah, and I feel like there's still some discrepancies between the members on the team where some folks will never squash anything because they see once commits are open, it's sort of like a public URL and you don't want to change it at that point. And then there are folks that are similar to me where we're not squashing it until it's after it's been reviewed, then it's reviewed, we squash it, we take it to staging. But then once it's in staging, we don't rebase or rewrite history because we want to keep those commits the same. So if I deployed something to staging, then needed to fix something or make an adjustment, that would be a fresh commit. And then that would not get squashed. That would go into master. As a fun data point, the project that I'm on, the enabled button within GitHub is squash and merge. So the only thing that I can do is squash, which is I've actually run into cases where I had a pull request and I very distinctly wanted to have two different commits. I wanted to like craft history and tell a little story. And I was not able to just had to smash them together. And so it's funny to see those two extremes represented. And the fact that I think GitHub has the option to enable any or all or none of the buttons. Well, not none, but any variant of those buttons. And it's just funny that there are teams who have chosen each of those different workflows and believe in it strongly. It's hard to come to consensus sometimes. I think that's why I keep circling back to the idea, because this feels like a contentious topic that I didn't realize that people have strong feelings about. Like I was, I'm, I'm honestly just used to sort of like the thoughtbot way and the fact that we like to squash and we like to rebase and we're, and we're fine with rewriting history and that's our approach. And then as I'm experiencing other teams and then trying to open my mind to be like, okay, well, what if I didn't do this the thoughtbot way and I go with a different style? What is that like? What do I gain? What do I lose? I think that's where I'm ending at is that I want folks to have control and feel ownership of their creative process. And I feel I feel like I'm trying to be fancy when I say creative process. I just don't know of another term for it. But we all think about our code in different ways and how we want to communicate that change to someone. And I want someone to feel like they have the ownership of crafting that message when it's getting reviewed and what's going to help the reviewer and then send it into master. So I want each person to be able to have that ownership. So when teams mandate that it's this way or this way, I feel like that's starting to feel like the one that I'm against the most, where I want folks to have a say in the matter. 
And then it is nice as a team if you can come to some sort of like middle ground because you don't want everyone doing something totally different. Interesting, though, because I feel like you like prettier and prettier takes away our creative expression. So I wonder. That's, I mean, (laughs) (laughs) it's formatting creative expression. (laughs) Is being able to have a typo commit creative expression? I don't want anyone else's typo commits. I want everyone to have to do the thing that I want. But I'm (laughs) apparently a little more opinionated on this topic. Or you're being kind and offering to meet people in the middle, which I think is a really good thing. And the way that you're describing it of trying to understand what is causing this desire. Why are people choosing this other workflow? Because you see obvious value in the one. Certainly, there's some reason that they've chosen this alternative workflow and they're opting out of the value that we see in in the one. So I think you're describing a very positive, collaborative engagement around a surprisingly thorny topic. It is surprisingly thorny. I guess that was the other thing I didn't expect from it, too, is that people feel very passionate about this particular topic. And so that's why I tried to back it up and be like, is this just superficial? Like, are we just arguing Mm -hmm. like tabs versus spaces here? Like, how important really is this? Tabs versus spaces is critically important. (laughs) I'm sorry, what? Did I just alienate like most people? Like, how real is this conversation? And that's why I tried to back it up to figure out, like, why is it that I feel pain from this? And I think you did a really nice job of discussing earlier the fact that I feel like I have lost context and the succinct state of the world and versus having to look back to those changes. I'm so glad you thought I said something useful because I felt like I was just throwing around wild opinions. So, cool. I am one of those people who feel strongly about this topic, but... Well, and it helps that I know that you feel the same way, too, where you want to squash and, and rebase as well. Yeah, yeah, safe space and all that. But it's been really nice because I'm working with Carl Rays on the project, another thought botter, and he has done a great job of sort of being like, well, what's wrong with it? I think he agrees as well, where he would prefer to squash and rebase, but he's done a good job of being like, well, what if we just went this way? Like, what's what pain are we feeling from it? Maybe it's very helpful in trying to point out the benefits. So that's been really nice to, to have that balance on the team. So I'm still kind of on a journey of understanding different workflows with Git, and I'm still forming my opinions around what works best for me and what seems to help others. So yeah, it feels like it's been a rambly journey with you today, but this has been like a nice topic to dive into with someone because it's something that I'm, I feel like I'm still processing on a weekly basis to figure out what's important to me and also what seems beneficial to others. I think it's always interesting when you have a more extreme response to something than you would necessarily expect to like the question you were asking of is this superficial i think is a really good one to ask but then also is there something more here is there actually substance under the surface and being able to like recognize that situation then ask either of those two questions feels like a a very positive way to approach this sort of thing nothing but positive fire (laughs) (laughs) well do you want to you want to wrap up yeah let's wrap up show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm This show is produced and edited by Tom Obarski. If you've enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes. It really helps other folks find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed or reach me at svicari on Twitter. And I'm at Chris Toomey. Or host at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to The Bike Shed, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. Join our team dedicated to creating products people love to use. With open positions at our studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh-Durham, come discover a better way to work.